Welcome to the Her God Speaks podcast special Tuesday feature called Hermeneutics Tuesdays. Yes, that's Tuesdays with an H, where we are seeking to become better interpreters of the Bible one 10-minute episode at a time. I'm your host, April Spears. Let's learn stuff together. Welcome back, friends. So chapter five of misreading scripture with Western eyes was a challenge for me, which is why I took an extra week to get my mind around it. I cannot say that I've mastered the content, but I'm definitely ready to share what I've learned. Like so many of you listening, some of my least favorite years were my middle school years. The common denominator of all the things that make me cringe when I look back on grades six through eight is the overwhelming desire to fit in. I wanted so badly to be cool. Unfortunately, I had a shy and reserved nature that assured I would never achieve this goal. But that doesn't mean I didn't try. I vividly remember prank calling boys at a sleepover. I even used the most sultry voice my sheltered little house on the prairie loving self could muster. (laughs) Trust me when I say that there was nothing more out of character for 14-year-old April than prank calling boys. But I did it. I did it because the cool girls did it, and I wanted them to like me. We call this peer pressure, and in our Western individualistic culture, it's something we are trained from a very young age to resist. Be true to yourself. Chart your own path. Go against the grain. Choose the road less traveled. In a field of daisies, be a wildflower. Or my all-time favorite, If everybody else jumped off a cliff, would you jump too? These common phrases all reflect a distinctly Western way of framing our decisions. In our culture, we reach the highest level of discerning right from wrong when we are able to do so without regard for the opinion of the group. Richards and O'Brien point out that for us, right and wrong are expected to be internal within the heart and the mind of each person. And people are expected to choose right behavior on the basis of conscience. Rules and laws are established to guide people in the right path, but ultimately the goal is that people will internalize the code of conduct so that it becomes not a matter of external influence, but of internal guidance. Hence, the familiar image of an individual with a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other, reflecting how each person feels an internal tug of war when facing a moral dilemma. For us, doing the right thing means listening to the right internal voice. If you're like me, you assume this is how all people everywhere since the beginning of time have thought about right and wrong. This assumption is incorrect. Eastern cultures, including the ancient Near Eastern culture of the Old Testament and the ancient Greco-Roman culture of the New Testament, frame decision-making very differently. What's right is not primarily determined by rule of law and personal conscience, but rather by what leads to acceptance and inclusion by the group, otherwise known as honor. Something is Wrong, not primarily because it breaks the law or violates one's conscience, but rather because it leads to rejection and exclusion from the group. Another word for this is shame. Richards and O'Brien dive into biblical examples of this honor-shame context with the story of David and Bathsheba. 
I have to say, I was extremely disappointed that they deemed it worthwhile to dedicate a very lengthy paragraph to their belief that Bathsheba seduced David. So permit me to digress for a couple of minutes. If you haven't read the chapter, this will feel really out of place, but I think their representation of Bathsheba is important to push back on and correct. Given the power differential between David and the wife of Uriah, only the most pathetic definition of consent would deem her responsible in any way. We'll get back to honor and shame cultures in a minute, but first some pointed words from Old Testament scholar Carmen Imes are in order. Pinning the blame equally on Bathsheba ignores how God assesses the story through Nathan. It ignores the culture of the city of David, and it ignores the clear exegetical signals throughout the chapter. For David, as for every Israelite, the neighbor's wife is like a daughter to be protected, not an experience to be collected. David knows Bathsheba is unavailable, but this doesn't deter him in the least. Like a predator, he summons her. He comes to believe that because he has power, he can have whatever he wants when he wants it. When I reflect on the narrative, I often wonder whether it's fair to call it the story of David and Bathsheba. Naming her implies cooperation, where the text claims nothing of the sort. At the very least, we should call it David and the wife of Uriah, or David and Uriah, since the showdown is clearly between these two men. End quote. I personally don't find much of what Richards and O'Brien write about David and Bathsheba in chapter 5 all that helpful. Plus, I'm still kind of mad about it, to be honest. So let's consider some better examples of how this cultural difference related to determining right and wrong affects how we read the Bible. Let's start with the gospel itself. You and I communicate the gospel in terms of individual guilt from breaking God's law and personal forgiveness of that guilt through faith in Jesus. Justification is most often defined in judicial terms. God, the supreme judge, finds me personally guilty of breaking his law or missing the mark. Therefore, I am condemned to eternal death. But through the cross, Jesus took my guilt and credited or imputed to me his righteousness. Therefore, when God looks at me, it's just as if I'd never sinned. What I didn't realize until recently is that this is largely a 16th century version of the gospel, rooted in the writings of the Protestant Reformation, which were contextualized for a Western audience. Now, I want to be clear, this doesn't make our westernized gospel wrong or inaccurate. We just need to acknowledge that it's been reconfigured to resonate in cultures like ours. In its own ancient context, the Bible doesn't speak as much of individual guilt and personal forgiveness, though it certainly does speak of those things, as it does shame and honor. In a paper titled From Shame to Honor, a Theological Reading of Romans for Honor-Shame Context, Jason Georges summarizes the gospel through an honor-shame lens. I'm quoting from him here. Humanity's main problem is its shame and dishonor resulting from its idolatrous unfaithfulness and from its weakness as slaves to sin and death. In essence, we are the very opposite of the creator who is honorable due to his faithfulness and strength. Although shame and disgrace cover all humans, God has bestowed honor through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Salvation is not simply forgiveness of sins, the imputation of alien righteousness, or eternity in heaven, but honor and glory, the removal of shame, and group inclusion. 
The original honorable status granted by God to creation is restored in the new creation. End quote. This honor-shame perspective on the Christian gospel helps explain why the themes of adoption and inheritance loom so large in the New Testament. It's also why there's so much talk about glory, glorification, and sanctification. All of these point to the honor that believers enjoy through their union with Christ. It also helps explain Jesus' attraction to the marginalized, the shamed. He was constantly welcoming the outcasts of his day into his community of honor. From the perspective of Eastern honor-shame cultures, this gracious inclusion is the primary effect of the gospel. The honor-shame context of the Bible also helps us understand why there's such a pointed focus on Judgment Day, and more specifically, the dispensing of reward and punishment on that day. The language used in the Judgment Day passages is honor-shame language. The earliest Christians faced intense shame from those outside the Christian community. The constant reminders that a great reward awaited those who remained faithful through the persecution was incredibly important. With the world shamed, God would surely honor. It didn't hurt to be reminded that the one shaming them would face severe punishment in the end. God would vindicate his own. When such passages are used today in sermons or Bible studies to craft a dramatic scene in which a person is forced to watch a play-by-play of every sin they've ever committed on a heavenly movie screen, I think it's safe to say the point of the judgment reward passages has been sorely misrepresented. The point is equally missed when the constant warnings in Scripture to endure to the end are ignored because preachers and teachers aren't sure how they square with salvation by grace alone. According to the New Testament, the ultimate shame is not defined as having sex before marriage, being gay, getting a divorce, or whatever else we consider the quote-unquote big sins. The ultimate shame is not finishing well, not remaining loyal to King Jesus to the very end. Understanding the honor-shame dynamic of the Bible helps this come more fully into view. Another area that understanding the honor-shame dynamic of the Bible is really helpful has to do with holding believers accountable for their sin. There's ample evidence of church discipline in the New Testament, and from what we can tell, it was harsh. Here are the words of Jesus about an unrepentant believer in Matthew 18, 17. If they still refuse to listen after being privately confronted about their sin, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. When a man in the church of Corinth was caught sleeping with his father's wife, Paul was appalled that they had allowed him to remain in their fellowship and commanded that they, quote, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. That's 1 Corinthians 5, 5. A few verses later, he concludes, expel the wicked person from among you. It's really important for us to understand that in the honor-shame culture of the New Testament, what Jesus and Paul prescribe would have been straightforward and effective. Honor was always connected to group participation. Acceptance and inclusion in the group was everything. This is not the case in our culture. Group acceptance matters, no doubt, but it doesn't trump an individual's inner sense of what's right or wrong for them. I think this goes a long way in explaining why church discipline in our context is so messy and, from what I've observed, rarely leads to the kind of restoration envisioned by Jesus and Paul. 
Consider the devout Christian parents who find that their child who professes to follow Jesus is gay and has a partner. Now, in their minds, the quote-unquote biblical response is to apply Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. They wholeheartedly believe that Jesus would want them to harshly rebuke their child and withhold relational connection from that child unless and until the child comes to his or her senses and repents. While this shunning would likely be very effective in an honor-shame culture, it rarely produces anything but painful religious trauma in ours. Chances are that child has been raised from birth to think for his or her self, to take the road less traveled, so to speak. In this case, that road is a gay lifestyle, and there's almost zero chance those parents will ever have a meaningful influence in their child's life again. Now, it's imperative that communities of Christians hold each other accountable for sin. But a wholesale mapping of a Matthew 18-style shunning onto our context is unwise. There are culturally rooted complexities and nuances that have to be considered. When we remove those passages from their honor-shame context and apply them indiscriminately to our own, we risk doing irreparable harm. Those we harshly cast out will likely never return. Since I'm a woman and the majority of my audience is female, I can't bring this to a close without talking about how the honor-shame context of the Bible impacts our reading of passages on gender. New Testament scholar David De Silva is really helpful here. If you want to dive deeper into the cultural context of the New Testament, his book, Honor, Patronage, Kinship, and Purity, is the gold standard. I'm quoting from it here. In the ancient world, as in many traditional cultures today, men and women generally have different arenas for the preservation and acquisition of honor and different standards for honorable activity. Men occupy the public spaces, while women are generally directed toward the private spaces of home and hearth. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Still quoting from De Silva here. The reason for this regulation of women to private, or more precisely, non-male spaces, is rooted in the ancient male conception of a woman's place in the world. She is not seen as an independent entity or agent, but as someone embedded in the identity and honor of some male, her father, if she's unmarried, and generally her husband after she marries. If she fails to protect her honor, it is her father or her husband who is shamed. In other words, a female's honor is inseparably connected to a male's honor. De Silva continues. We do find a good deal of space given over to promoting, or simply reflecting, the larger society's view of the honorable female within the pages of the New Testament. He cites 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul attempts to convince Corinthian Christians that women must pray in the assembly with their heads covered as a prime example of this. Go read that chapter with its honor-shame context in mind. I promise, it'll hit different. Now, chances are you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 14.34, which says women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission. Paul goes on to give the reason. For it is disgraceful. The ESV says shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, given the consistent witness of scripture, including the writings of Paul, to the value of female voices, he can't mean that it's disgraceful to God or disgraceful for all time and all places. It's obvious that it was disgraceful for the Corinthian women in their particular context. 
Corinthian women speaking in the way that Paul forbids in this passage would have brought shame on the whole group, particularly from outsiders. In our context, the complete opposite is true. It's deemed shameful by outsiders when women are not allowed to speak in the gathered assembly. De Silva texts this next comment away in his footnotes, but I think it's important to consider. Making what was a concession to ancient cultural values normative for the church in every age seems to me to be erroneous, particularly since it's done at the expense of so many passages that speak of the gifting of all believers, including the gift of prophecy being poured out on sons and daughters, both slave and free men and women for the building up of the church, end quote. Now, I'm still in process on the women in pastoral leadership question, and insights like this remind me that I've got a long way to go toward better understanding the context into which these passages were written and the implications for how we apply them today. Every passage related to what women presumably can and cannot do comes to us with an invisible but vitally important label, handle with care. Now, I've got two ideas for helping us overcome our assumptions related to how we define right and wrong and to better understand honor-shame cultures. First, spend a little time on honorshame.com. That's right, there's a whole website devoted to this. And that's because missionaries serving in honor-shame context need to know this stuff. When you get to honorshame.com, click on the resources tab and then click on videos. Watch Back to God's Village and Honor Shame 101. They're both short and super helpful. My second idea is to read the book of 1 Peter with an eye toward honor-shame language. 1 Peter was written to Christians who were being shamed for their loyalty to Jesus. As you read, try as hard as you can to place yourself in the shoes of someone whose supreme desire is to be accepted and included by the group and whose biggest fear is rejection and exclusion. Go ahead and channel that middle school angst. Listen carefully for how Peter addresses the shame those early Christians endured and reminds them of the unshakable honor and ultimate reward that comes from following Jesus. It's really powerful to read through the lens of honor and shame. Well, there's so much more that could be said about this, but I've gone way over time. I'm sure you're not surprised. (laughs) Next week, we'll tackle chapter six of Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes as we look at uniquely Western assumptions we make about time. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. Bye.